This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. This is the Prophetic Politics Podcast. I'm Nick Rodriguez. I'm Tabidi Anyabule. And I'm Ben Brophy. And in this episode, we are going to talk about um, judges, the Supreme Court, and the Constitution. Um, we think this is long enough that it's going to be a two-parter. So we'll, we're really going to talk, really focus on judges and their role uh, in this week's episode. And then in next week's, we'll talk a little bit more about the Constitution, the law, and kind of how they interpret it. Um, but today, what we want to do is talk a little bit about like the role judges play in politics and in making these sorts of momentous decisions. And it's, it's appropriate that we, um, that we have this episode today because of course it's sort of Supreme Court season. The Supreme Court ends its term in June of every year and usually they release the last of their decisions for the term. And there's always one or two big ones that are coming out. So by the time you uh, listen to this, you'll have kind of <laughs> learned whatever the Supreme Court decided this year um, and some of the big things that they ruled on. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and just set the table and talk a bit about sort of what is a judge? What do judges do? <laughs> um, and why do they matter in our system of government? So um, if you remember learning about American government, uh, whenever you did that, uh, we always talk about three branches of government, and we always talk about the separation of powers between them. Um, and in our Constitution, they're actually laid out in the first three articles of the Constitution. So the first branch of government the legislative is Congress, the second branch of government, the executive is the president, and the third branch of government, the third article of the Constitution, um, are judges and the Supreme Court. Um, these judges are appointed for life, at least at the federal level, um, and the reason for this is to preserve their independence. And so the basic role then, between the role split between the three branches is the Congress makes laws, the president and the executive carries out those laws and enforces them, uh, and then the judges have what's called the judicial power. What exactly does that mean? Well, um, it actually wasn't clear uh, until an early Supreme Court case called Marbury, Marbury v. Madison made it clear. Uh, Marbury, Marbury v. Madison established what was called the power of judicial review. Um, the power essentially to review any law or any policy uh, enacted by Congress or by a state government, uh, eventually that was the understanding, uh, to review any of those actions and to determine, is this consistent with what the Constitution says we're allowed to do? Um, and, and actually, um, they, do, they do this at every level. They'll determine whether a state law is compatible with a federal statute, uh, whatever kind of the more supreme law is, but the Constitution obviously is the sort of ultimate law for us. Um, so the Supreme Court has the power to review a law and possibly strike it down as unconstitutional. Um, and they have the final word on this, um, which is a big deal, right? Once the Supreme Court decides something, there's um, often little or nothing that the other two branches of government can do about it. And we'll say more about that when we talk about uh, cases. Um, inevitably, what this means is that the cases that do reach the Supreme Court for this sort of review are really difficult ones. They usually pit strong principles against each other. They pit one law against another law, usually. 
uh, and the judges have to decide. I remember taking one law school class as an undergraduate, and the quote that sticks out to me from that is the professor said, the, jo the job of a judge is to decide the undecidable. Um, the cases are almost always difficult. Um, and so for that reason, the Supreme Court and its composition and its decisions are often this hotly contested political space. Um, I'll just say one other thing, which is that um, if you pay attention to the news, you'll know that conservatives care a great deal about the court and the courts, and that evangelicals tend to care a great deal about the court or the courts, right? So there's a, there's a, in one telling of the story, uh, you know, Donald Trump got the support from evangelicals that he did in 2016 because he was so rock solid on his promises about appointing the right kind of judges to the court. Um, and I'll just say two things, I think, about why, why evangelicals care about the court, although, Ben, I'd be interested in, I'd be, I'd be interested in both of your guys' contributions on, you know, other reasons why we think conservatives and evangelicals care a great deal about it. The, the, you know, one simplistic telling of the story is evangelicals care about the court because of abortion, right? So there's a famous case from 1973 called Roe v. Wade. It effectively legalized abortion across the land, and it did so in that Supreme Court way I just described, which is to say that they have the final word, and so there's nothing the other branches of government could do to reverse that decision. And ever since then, um, evangelicals have said we need you know, judges on the court who are either going to weaken or overturn that decision, essentially, because the issue of abortion is so darn important. But there are other issues as well that obviously conservatives and evangelicals care a great deal about. Um, and we'll talk more about this next week, but the other reason that, you know, conservatives and evangelicals care about the court is because they um, um, think a lot about sort of, you know, how do you interpret the Constitution and the principle of interpreting the Constitution in a certain way? Um, and, and, you know, they would say being closer to the text than progressives who want to be looser with the text as it will, as it were. Again, we'll say more about that next week. But Tabidi, Ben, anything else you'd say kind of about why conservatives or evangelicals care a great deal about our, our courts and our judges? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think abortion is the largest issue, right? I mean, um, there has been a concerted strategy to fight those battles legally um, in the judicial system. Um, you know, I guess there's, it makes some sort of sense in the idea that like that debate started at the Supreme Court. So maybe, you know, they're thinking, well, we have to undo Roe v. Wade in order to get rid of abortion. So it could be kind of a myopic focus on one particular lever. Um, and given today's news, and I know we're not trying to be super topical, I mean, it seems to me like that avenue, that avenue is, is wasted energy now. Um, and so, it does seem myopic in the sense that we we probably need to be pivoting hard to non-policy solutions to this particular issue. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think there's been 40 years of jurisprudence activity on trying to to make this stop by conservative evangelicals. It has not worked, um, you know. And I I'll be curious to see if the pro-life movement kind of changes strategy now. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's why I think there has been a strong, uh, focus on it. And I understand the logic to some degree. Um, yeah. And I'm not, and I even support it, right? Like I want the Supreme court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, I don't want to be completely pragmatic at the same time, putting all your eggs in one basket really 
puts a lot of pressure on that basket. The other part of it that, you know, this is kind of like a, a hobby horse of mine. Congress has kind of decided not to legislate on several things um, for a long time. Uh, Mitch McConnell has funded Planned Parenthood annually for a long time. And so there is a sense in which like, um, yeah, the, the, we're punting a lot of battles, not just on abortion, uh, to the courts because Congress is passing less bills than it used to, spending less time in session than it used to, um, barely even getting the basic budgeting requirements done. Uh, and I think Congress has been like a real, is just a perfect picture of the symptoms of our increasing polarization, at least in the elite level. Um, I'm not as convinced that we're as polarized out in the, the less political class, um, but in DC, I think that, there, that certainly bears some truth. So yeah, I think people are getting into knife fights about judicial appointees because um, Congress, it doesn't seem possible to legislate on many of these things by the, the traditional congressional method. Those are my brief thoughts. <laughs> ben, Ben, you made reference to a decision that came out today. Just for the sake of the listener, you might want to say 30 seconds on what that decision is. Oh, goodness. Um, or not. <laughs> <laughs> I forget the problem is now I, I forget the, I read a whole bunch of opinions on it. Uh, essentially, the, uh, but I remember, I can't remember the name of the case. It's Nick, called June Medical Services v. Russo. Yeah, yeah so it's uh, Louisiana state law. Um, Ostensibly, that was for the health of the mother, um, and so it essentially restricted uh, abortion providers down to one in Louisiana. Um, as I understand the court's decision in a 5-4 ruling with Chief Justice Roberts joining the four more progressive members of the court, they, they ruled that essentially this was too much of a burden on uh, access to abortion and therefore struck the law. Nick, is that a fair rendering? Yes. Um, and I'll, all I'll add to that is that it was, this is getting into the real technical details, but it was a, it was a four to one to four decision, Ben, in which oh, that's four right. liberals yes. all said, you know, the law is unconstitutional, in which Robert said, I am joining the liberals, not because I agree with everything they say, but because we ruled on almost exact same facts for a different state law, you know, like four years ago. And therefore- of course. Of course, he, of course, a case in which he dissented. So yes, yes, no, no, no. Uh, but that's fascinating. Actually, but that that actually highlights though something you just noted, Ben, which is that whenever we look at what judges decide, there are two warring instincts in our own minds and hearts. That is to say, what is the outcome of the case, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like, i.e., abortion is legal or abortion is not and then the sort of process by which that outcome was reached. And so when, you know, if you almost see it in Roberts's decision. I didn't agree with the earlier decision, but it was the majority decision. And I'm not for just overturning it now that we have the votes to overturn it, essentially. Uh, because I think that matters. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a doctrine called stare decisis, um, you know, which means let the decision stand, which courts defer to, but not entirely it means there's a lot of respect that needs to be given to precedent and particularly to recent precedent right so to take an opposite example um you know brown v board of education in 
1954, famously partially overturned another case called Plessy v. Ferguson, but that case was 60, almost 60 years old, right? And so in a way there was more comfort with that. Um, I mean, there are lots of different factors. I mean, you could argue, you know, it goes both ways, right? So overturning Roe v. Wade, which is now a um, nearly 50 year old decision, right? Like would be uh, on the one hand, maybe that's okay because it's been 50 years. On the other hand, maybe because it's been 50 years, it's so it's such subtle law, right? So that, that, that's part of what the, I think the complexities of how judges rule come into play. Sure, yeah. And, and I think as a layman, um, that kind of legalese can get really frustrating in the sense of like, you know, the ultimate question isn't necessarily does this like obey uh, jurisprudence doctrine, right? Like stare decisis, like there's this, this court, this with the same makeup has overturned plenty of cases that had precedent set. So it becomes you know, the, fam the, the famous joke in law school is like, you get asked a question by the professor and if you're stalling for time, you just say, well, it depends, um, which is true. Like you can make a case any which way you want based on the facts of the case and jurisprudence history up until that point. Frankly, in a quick, brief personal anecdote, that's why I, I took the LSATs and then didn't pursue law school because of that reason. I was like, they're just making it up. They're just making all this up. Like it's totally like who can argue the best based on this loose set of rules that we kind of agree to unless we don't agree with it anymore. And so I just got thought it was all made up anyway. Um, oh, but I think, We're going to have a good time next week when we talk about judicial philosophies. Then. Um, sure. But uh, yeah, yeah. So I think to the, to the layman, it's like, you know, come on, you yeah, rule so, one so way then, and four years later, we're going to turn it over. But what I think you're evincing there is, you know what the outcome of this case meant. It meant that abortion is still legal and that this law against abortion is being struck down. And that's dominating your and many people's reaction to the decision, right? And then there are other people who say, well, wait a minute, what about the philosophy and the way the decision was reached, et cetera? And by the way, the shoe is sometimes on the other foot when the decision is liked by progressives and not liked by conservatives. Right, like, and you know, and 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 uh, I'm sorry, other way around. When other when way. the decisions liked by conservatives and not liked by progressives, right? Um, where people, where so again, I think I don't know. I feel as if all humans kind of react to court cases right. um, if they care about these issues in those ways. Which it shows yeah. you like the 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 logical narratives or the constructions that we undergird all of our positions on these cases. Like, they're not neutral and they're not objective, um, and so. Yeah, I think Robert's argument for his own position like leaves like a lot to be desired. Like, uh, I feel like we need some representative from the Federalist Society here to argue the, the opposite point here, Ben. <laughs> like, um, but Which yeah, one no, is I, I hear what Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think I understand that they want to protect the legitimacy of the Supreme Court and they don't want to undermine its authority. But functionally, what that turns into is, you know, I'm just going to put my finger up to the wind and kind of try to discern, you know, whether this is, you know, which way things are going. Um, but I think even I think even that can undermine the legitimacy of the court in the sense of like, if the chief justice is kind of flip flopping one way or the other, 
um, it, it undermines like the stability of his legal decisions. Anyway, I, you can argue this specific case any, any which way that you want. Um, I think biblically it's a bad outcome. Um, and I think what it signals is that 40 years of effort on conservative legal uh, effort to overturn Roe v. Wade was, has proven to be really a bad strategy. We should not have put all of our eggs in that one basket and it's over now. It's done. Like, the court is never going to be. I don't. I don't know that that's necessarily true, Ben. But 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 let's let's pause there for a second. Um, okay. As we should we should take a brief break, and when we come back, um, we'll talk a little bit about what the Bible has to say about judges. And I think Ben, I want to come back to your question about what should Christians think about judges and how many eggs should we put in that basket? Because I think that's really what this is about. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. And we're back. All right. So, Beatty, I think Ben's set us up well in saying, you know, if you're a judge, you have a lot of different things to kind of consider in trying to make decisions that dispense justice. And we've talked about some of them, precedent, law, history, the actual outcome of the case, what it leads to, et cetera. To be, what does the Bible have to say about judges and justice? Before we go to that, though, um, happy, happy to take a crack at that. But before we do, uh, Nick, you set up that last segment by asking the question, why do conservatives and evangelicals care so much about the court? Oh, yeah. Almost suggesting that, that folks who are more moderate or more progressive or, or on the left don't. Um, and I wonder if you would unpack that a bit, because I feel like I see folks... Uh, across the spectrum, uh, really sort of energized and activated around the question of uh, the courts, uh, even if it's merely the energy that comes from thinking, I don't want the other folks to decide who's on the courts. Sure. So it is true that like everyone across the spectrum cares about the court, like at a baseline level. I think the lore out there, and I think it's at least partially true, is that conservatives care more right, that it is an animating issue and that it is one that is, um, it, that is it's just particularly powerful. So like a liberal, liberals will say, it's just that liberals energy is more diffuse. They like care about a whole bunch of issues, but I'll, I'll give you a very, very concrete example of this. In, in, two, in four years, almost four years of unified sort of Republican president, Republican Senate under Trump, right? They have confirmed a sort of record number of judges because they made that a priority, right? Contrast that with the years 2008 to 2012, really 2008 to 2014, during that entire time you have a Democratic president and a Democratic Senate. And the pace of appointment of judges was much, much, much slower because it was just not as high a priority, 
Um, they were far less willing to kind of sort of push and push and push to get judges through. And then as soon as Republicans take over the Senate in 2014, the pace of confirmation of judges slows to a crawl because they're like, we're just going to not let Obama confirm, you know, any judges if we can help it. Right. Um, so I, I'm just saying it's not I'm, it's not a huge point I'm making, to be honest, just to note that, like, it is more of an animating issue on the right than it is on the left. Thanks for that. That's helpful. That's helpful. Well, yeah, the Bible ha does have quite a bit to say about judges and jurisprudence, um, not necessarily about American style um, government uh, with its separation of powers and things of that sort. But I think we could articulate at least three things from the scripture that are scaffolding for how Christians should think about the courts and judges at a minimum. We've said this a number of times in a number of programs, but uh, that seminal text, Romans 13, is applicable here, that government is ordained by God uh, for justice. So those who serve in government are God's ministers to do justice, Romans 13, um, simply sort of defines punitive justice as rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil. Uh, and that's uh, perhaps nowhere more clearly carried out than in our system of courts. But the ability to act as Romans 13 prescribes really stems from two types of what I'll call integrity that the Bible also explicitly addresses. First, there should be an integrity in character. So from the earliest points that the Bible begins to address the question of judges and um, making decisions in legal cases, we get this issue of the character of the judge sort of put front and center. Exodus 18, 21, as an example, the Bible says there, moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties and of tens. So there you've got a system of, of sort of um, interlocking courts, uh, various levels of people who are, who are sort of judged and uh, led there. And, and what the text sort of directs our attention to is the, is the character, uh, the integrity of character of these men. That they are men who fear God, who are trustworthy, hate a bribe, and so on. The other kind of integrity I think the Bible speaks to is integrity in rulings. So this is not so much about the judge, but about how judgments are arrived at. We might call this procedural justice. Um, and, and so the processes that lead to rulings must themselves be fair or just in uh, anything we might call a kind of biblical system of, of, of courts. Um, it's this procedural justice that gives the courts its legitimacy uh, and, and its integrity. So in the Old Testament, the, the issue that most symbolizes fair procedures uh, is bribes or bribery. Exodus 23.8, and you shall take no bribe, for bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Deuteronomy 16, 19, you shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Now in the New Testament, we don't find the word bribe uh, at, at all. However, we do find that word from Deuteronomy 16, 19, partiality. And so several places, uh, in the New Testament, the New Testament uh, speaks against partiality as a pretty significant sin, both New Testament and the Old Testament. So Proverbs 24, 23 says very simply, partiality in judging is not good. 
So we want a court system and, and judges in that system that are not biased. James chapter two, probably be the, the, the classical location uh, for a New Testament statement against partiality. You don't favor the rich over the poor and so on. Now, what's, what's interesting to me, at least, as you think about this from a biblical perspective, is that this integrity in character and this integrity in judicial procedure or rulings is not a political or pragmatic consideration. The, the Bible's argument for uh, character and integrity in, in procedure, it, it, it isn't merely something that we should be seeking um, as a political calculation. More fundamentally, the Bible is teaching that God's people should seek this kind of integrity because it flows from the character of God himself. So courts and judges are meant to image forth the righteousness, integrity, and the impartiality of the God we serve. That's our interest in that. Now, I, I stress that a little bit because I think when we start to sort of see the politicization of judges and appointments, mm. and we hear the language around activist judges, whether you're for them or against them, um, even the conversation, which we'll talk about, Lord willing, next week, around how you approach the reading of the Constitution, the application of the Constitution and law, man, that's, that's such fertile ground for partiality. That is such fertile ground for Christians yeah. to approach this question, thinking about our party and how we sort of enshrine in the law and in the system um, considerations for our, our party or considerations against the other party is so ripe for um, partiality. And I think we need to be really careful there because in the first instance, what we want to have is a system of justice that images forth God's own character in that way. Yeah, thanks, Timothy. And, uh, you know, with I think that's a really, really helpful thing to ground it in. I think it speaks to you, to Ben, what you were saying earlier, right, around, well, procedural justice and the actual justice of the outcome and the integrity of the judge, those are three related but distinct things. And a judge kind of has to bring all three of them together, which is really hard, which can be really hard sometimes. Um, to me, let me ask you, I, I gave my answer as to, I think conservatives are more obsessed with the Supreme Court, but did you disagree with that? Right, because I think, you know, like, do you think that it's sort of one of those things where actually it's just something we're all kind of worried, you know, we're all worried about? I, I do, I think we're all worried about it. I, I think, um maybe we have the impression of, of conservatives being more concerned about it because that's a bit more the milieu that we, we live in and swim in. Um, sure. But again, particularly on, on, on Roe and on abortion rights, yeah. I feel like I look across the, the other side of the issue and I see lots of people, um, you know, making a woman's right to choose sure. that language, a litmus test for the qualification of judges. I think the whole question about precedent and how, how a, a justice responds to precedent um, isn't nearly about their judicial philosophy. I think often that's the question that cloaks the partiality uh, and, and that cloaks the, the politicization uh, of judges. Um, because if, you, if you're asking that question as someone who's pro-abortion and you're asking about precedent, you, what you're really asking is, will you maintain Roe? Right? You, you're, not, you're not really asking them an abstract, ethereal, philosophical question. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think both sides are, are pretty, pretty animated about this issue on the issues that, 
will they feel like they're in jeopardy? Yeah. Well, Ben, I'm thinking of something you said earlier, which is that it is one thing just to note, our Supreme Court is unusually high profile among like Supreme Courts in sort of developed Western countries, right? Like very, you know, like if you look at like Canada or the UK or whatever else, like their Supreme Courts are far less well known um, and sort of play less of a central role in our kind of, in their sort of public imagination. There are various kind of historical reasons behind that, but I, I do think that it is, it is interesting that we, the stakes seem so high for some of the decisions the court makes. And for that reason, Davidi, when there's a confirmation hearing or you're trying to figure out like what a judge's philosophy is, what, as you say, you're really trying to figure out how are you going to rule on this case that matters to me and my people, uh, uh, you know, my people being my party often. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that's a great question, Nick. And I, I'm sorry to jump in on Ben. I know you posed it to Ben. Uh, I think it's a great question, and I think the question and the issue, I think, is really pointing out the erosion of some basic separation of powers uh, and integrity in our in our governing system overall. So when Ben makes the point earlier in the conversation about how the legislative branch is not making law um, yeah. at the rate that it used to, it, that's a that's an abandonment of duty. Right. And so now we have something closer to an imperial president, or we at least expect our presidents to be the main kind of champions for a, a, a vision for law and the creation of law. And in absent that, we have what people are calling a kind of activist court that's seeing sort of laws um, or, or creating laws out of, out of nothing, depending on who you're listening to, um, when that's not supposed to be their role. So I actually think we're in a much bigger crisis when it comes to our governing institutions and basic sort of duties. And, um, and, and so we have this, we have to say, yeah. And you look at the intention of the framers and the Congress was supposed to be the most powerful branch, right? I mean, they were given the, the purse strings um, and they why are one in the constitution. What's that? Article one. That's why it's article one in the constitution. Yes. That's right. Yeah. So, but instead they're the weakest. Um, and, you know, instead of, yeah, power abhors a vacuum. And I think the, both the Supreme Court and the presidency have, you know, gathered more power to themselves uh, and run the president. The presidency certainly runs unchecked um, by Congress in a lot of ways, even now, even with the divided Congress and executive branch that we have now. Um, and, and this, you, you know, uh, particularly the conservative party uh, makes every makes elections about judges because they're not doing the hard work of refusing to fund something like Planned Parenthood, for instance, or I'm sure there's an example cutting the other way that I can't think of. Um, but, you know, they'd rather kick the can down the road on that sort of legislation instead of um, actually getting into it. And so, yeah, you, you're going to get knife fights about judges because of that. I think I think it's I think it's hard though, and I'll just kind of uh, cite a couple of examples to point out where I, where and how I, I think it's hard. Ben, right? so, ben, Nick Nick likes the knife fight. He's ready to shake somebody. He's ready to shake somebody, man. What I'm what I guess I'm saying. So I agree with you guys. So actually, it's interesting. If you look at Roe, the argument of a conservative would be this. 
I'd love for us to make some laws, but we can't because the Supreme Court said in 1973 that there shall, that no law that is, you know, with some caveats, et cetera, that, that restricts abortion will pass constitutional muster, right? Like, and so they basically shut down the ability of the other branches of government to do anything about it. Now, the laws like the one that were under review from Louisiana this time around, like, were, are meant to be ways of pushing against that. But nonetheless, right, without, you could argue, without an, either an overturning of Roe v. Wade or an amendment to the Constitution itself, which is hard to do, like, the court left, left sort of, you know, pro-life activists with little choice but to pursue that. So like, that's kind of one example where you'd say, um, it's, it's hard, like, you know, state, a, a bunch of conservative state legislators would tell you, I've been doing my work, we've been passing as many kind of laws, right, as we could either to test them with the Supreme Court to see if like, we could get away with this kind of restriction or that kind of restriction. So in that sense, sometimes that's the issue. People will say, the Supreme Court by a decision has taken the decision making out of the hands of the elected branches of government and put it into their own. So that's one objection. But then there are other times when you look at case law the Supreme Court um, has where you say you actually want the Supreme Court to be in some cases counter-majoritarian, um, which is to say like that it will kind of protect certain principles even if the elected branches of government don't agree with them. So the the sort of classic example of this is Brown v. Board of Education, right? So the famous 1954 decision that desegregated schools, there would have been majorities in state legislatures all through the South and outside the South, right? Who would have at that time said, if you put it to a vote, we're gonna vote for segregation. And it was a court that had to come in and say, um, the principle outlined in the constitution there, in this case, the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection under the law, demands that schools be desegregated. And so we as a court are in fact gonna tell you, you can't pass laws like that anymore, right? And we look back on that and we say, that was actually a, that was actually a wise application of what the court um, you know, sort of should do, right? In, in, in terms of these things. And in that case, we wanted the unelected branch of government to kind of lead the way on constitutional principles. So that's what, that's what I mean when I say, um, it's hard to kind of blanket say, and that, that comes back to the old, like, well, it depends on what the outcome under discussion is. <laughs> and what we think of that outcome ultimately influences how we think about whether we thought the court did a good thing or not, if that makes sense. Well, I think you're, I'm not sure I'm following. I don't know that I'm tracking exactly, but I think your, your two examples kind of countermand each other in the sense of like, yeah. um, you know, on the one hand, you know, we're saying we do want the court to uh, judge justly in a way if the country's not ready for it. Yeah, Brown versus Board of Ed, I think we'd all affirm that that's a good idea. But then on the, on the other hand, with, with, what was your point again about Roe? That was the one I, I couldn't quite follow. My, my point is that in both of those cases, both of those cases, you have the court taking the decision-making out of the hands of the elected branches of government, right? Right, and so it's okay. a double-edged sword. Sometimes that works out for you. In another case, we, yeah. we don't, essentially. Right, which I think, like, just shows why, yeah, I mean, the standard by which I'm judging the Supreme Court's decisions is, is informed by what I think is judging with right judgment, which sure. would be, you know, obviously a biblical standard. And so, 
yeah, that, that that's why I'm miffed um, at that line of at that line of thinking. Um, yeah, I guess I guess the the to give the example on you know Congress kind of punting on its responsibility vis-a-vis -vis abortion, like Roe v. Wade is not the only thing uh, on the table, right? Like funding for Planned Parenthood is one that like Republican and Democrats have been quietly holding hands on for, you know, a long time, dec like a decade. Um, there's other, there's other laws you could pass at the federal level uh, around the issue. Um, you know, whether it's parental notification laws or whatever, and the Supreme Court can take those up as they happen. But I think, I think, you know, for somebody who's making the argument of like, well, you know, there's nothing Congress can do, uh, can do on this. I just don't think that's quite fair to say. Well, no, and I'll, and I'll give you two other more contemporary examples that illustrate your point even better, right? right? So everyone's probably heard about the Supreme Court considering challenges to Obamacare. It's happened once every couple of years for the last like eight years or something like that, right? And um, in all those cases, in, in one of those cases literally turned on what the members of Congress later admitted was a drafting error in the law. And there were, were people who said, we're, we want the whole law to be struck down because this drafting error makes the law unconstitutional. And Congress was in no position to simply vote and fix the drafting error because of how gridlocked Congress is, right? So that's one example. And then another example is actually the Voting Rights Act decision that came down about eight years ago. Um, people, people colloquially refer to that as having, quote unquote, struck down a part of the Voting Rights Act. But in reality, again, another John Roberts narrow court ruling then, what they did was they struck down the formula that Congress used to determine which states and cities and counties certain provisions of the Voting Rights Act applied to. And he even said, we just don't think this formula was rightly decided and we think Congress should update the formula. Over to you, Congress. And of course, Congress has not done anything. No, of uh, course not. The formula, right? So like, so, so the voting, we could have a muscular or well-enforced section two of the Voting Rights Act, but we don't because Congress can't act and won't act uh, on that right now. Uh, so, so, so your point is really well, well taken. It's just in each different sort of area of work, it kind of depends what's happening. Is the court either sort of taking a decision for itself that sort of overrides the legislature or is it simply saying like, or is it trying to do the work of the legislature or is it kind of leaving things to the legislature to do that the legislature simply won't do because it's too gridlocked? It's a mess. <laughs> a little bit, yeah, um, a little bit. I'll, I'll say one other thing though, to your point, Thabiti, about the about like the way the courts sort of used to be, um, or, or rather about sort of the, what we've evolved towards, which is that these days, confirmation hearings for any sort of federal judge, including judges on the Supreme Court, are very, very tense affairs that are about trying to figure out how you're gonna rule on these various issues that are important to my people. Um, but 50 years ago, that just wasn't the case, right? You've had, you have judges that even the ones that sit on the court today that were you know, confirmed under Clinton or the ones from before that confirmed by votes of like 90 to 10 in the Senate or unanimously confirmed. Um, not because the people voting for the nominee agreed with everything about the nominee, but because they said, well, you know, this person is judicially well qualified. 
Um, they are person actually often, I think to your point, Thabiti, it was sort of like, they are a person of integrity and character whose judgment I respect, even if I disagree with where they might land on some things. Yeah. Um, and so therefore, um, like I can vote for them, even though they've been appointed by a president of the other party from me, essentially, which of you know, course is what's happening in those cases. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, and remind all, me, remind me, when did that stop? I want to say it stopped. Yeah, it stopped under, under, well, yeah, so the, it started, it started under Bush and then under Obama. Well, what conservatives will say is we're talking Bork. about Bork. Yeah, I would have gone talking, to Bork. Yeah, which everything old is new again. I think Joe Biden was quite a big part of the, uh, the Borking of Robert Bork. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So, but Bork would have been in the 80s, right? Like yeah, under- 88, I think. Yeah, 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 under Reagan. What, a, what I'm so- you're right that that was that's considered a landmark moment because it was a moment when they said i don't care if you're well qualified i think you're too much of an ideologue so i'm not going to vote for you to join the court i think that's true um but you didn't have like sort of like the last two supreme court justices were literally confirmed by like votes of like 52 53 54 something like that um and under obama it was a little more and under bush it was a little bit more right and then under clinton like the last real sort of era of like justices being appointed with like large swaths of the Senate kind of saying yes um, was 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 then. Uh, you could argue it's just sort of been this gradual thing. I'm not sure I'd lay it in. Well, people love to sort of say who started it and ask that question, but like it has just sort of evolved in that way over time. If you look at the sort of numbers. Well, I think it, I think it reflects something that was shifting you know, in the early 90s, which is like kind of the beginning of the politicization of everything. Like one of the reasons Congress isn't effective is, you know, Newt Gingrich spearheaded this effort, but it was, you know, he campaigned against Democrats saying, you're not, you're not at home in your district. And so the idea of I'm going to fly home sure. Thursday night, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, fly back to DC on Tuesday, like that all started in the early 90s, right? Like there was no gentleman's agreement that we're all going to live in DC and do our work in DC, just as with the Supreme Court justices in Bork, it opened the door for, yeah, like this is now on the table for political knife fight. Like that is a big shift, late 80s, early 90s, where uh, things that were formerly, you know, we're gonna, you know, quote unquote, be civil about this turned into like, now everything's a dog fight. And I think, that has hurt Congress, and I think it's certainly hurt hurt the Supreme Court nomination process as well. Yep, yep, that's a really really good point. So with that, we'll take one more break, and then, Tweedy, you said this was a mess. We should try to talk about what are some ways we can get ourselves out of this mess, or at least what is the role that Christians uh, can play in helping us get out of this mess. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, a bounty hunter's journey to faith, hope, and redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com slash audio to learn more. And we're back. 
so it seems like a tough situation. Polarization, judges that can't really be evaluated based on, like we're far more interested in evaluating them based on how we think they're gonna rule on certain cases. Um, what, what the BDU called the politicization of judges, um, which seems to be at odds with some of the things that you know you're describing as kind of as 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 being uh, the kind of biblical imperatives. What are some sort of solutions we would suggest, um, either from a sort of a public policy perspective, or just as Christians or sort of activists trying to kind of encourage our elected representatives to do better? Oh, shoot. I don't have any ideas yet. <laughs> <laughs> that makes two of us. Uh, so I think we have to fall back on our stock and trade, right? I said, we got to pray for those in authority over us. And that's not nothing. Um, that's, that's significant. That's important. Um, and so we, we do need to pray in that way. Uh, I do think we need to try and use the, the like the courts are, further removed from us than our legislators, right? So I think we have to bring pressure to bear uh, on those elected officials that uh, are making decisions about the appointments of judges and uh, to let them hear from their districts about um, what, what we think is good and right in the way of, of process for confirming and selecting and vetting or any of those things and, and what we hope for. And hopefully we're doing that in a way that's not partisan, in a way that's not partial, but in a way that that kind of values what, um, yeah, what the Bible values. So, for example, if, if I go, if we go back to Merrick Garland, for example, uh, and the sort of um, holding up of his nomination, it, it could have been a really interesting moment for uh, people in, um, say, constituencies that. Um, we're, we're not the presidents, not sort of not democratic areas, not democratic constituency, calling calling their Republican or conservative uh, representatives and saying, hey, uh, on behalf of this guy and on behalf of the process, more importantly, you guys need to move that, you need to move that, that sort of nomination along. Um, so I think we have to sort of advocate sometimes in ways that aren't just sort of neatly associated with our party identity. Um, we have to advocate for principle, and it's probably most important that we do that when it seems like we're going to lose in the outcome um, in, in terms of like appointments and processes and things of that sort. So, uh, but beyond that, I don't, I really don't know how it is we can impact the culture of, of um, the courts in the country. I guess the only the only thing I would add to that, I mean, it is it is hard. They're not elected, so there's not a, there's not the same kind of stewardship over a vote that you have. Mm -hmm. Media is is good to remind us to pray. Um, I think for Christians who aspire to be lawyers, I think we should encourage that. I think we need more well-thinking, biblically-minded Christians to be lawyers and judges. Um, if we think that ultimately right judgment is rendered by um, making decisions that are holy and honor God, then we want people who are grounded in those things to be in the legal system. Um, so I think I saw, I read some stuff today that like the proportion of uh, legal professionals that are religious is falling like year by year. And so 
I think we want to encourage our people who have a talent that way to pursue it. Um, but that is, that is probably the only, the only tangible suggestion I, I have. Um, yeah, that's what comes to mind for me is just kind of is lifting up um, people who are inclined that way to pursue it. So, um, I'm, I'm, of course, we can always, I think, come back to, uh, I think the need for the need for prayer, the need for kind of just thinking about this and just the personal actions we can take. I'll I'll rehearse a couple of the sort of public policy solutions that have been floating out there, just so people can think about them. Not that some of them are easier than others, right? So there are there are proposals out there, for example, about like how courts get shaped um, that can the idea of kind of taking down the temperature and depoliticizing some of these things. So you can do a couple of things. You could do sort of rotating term limits for judges and for justices of the Supreme Court. So that essentially there's a schedule, like every year there's a certain number of appointments to make no matter what, there's no gaming of that. It has to happen. Um, you could go further. You could say, if the vacancy isn't filled by like, you know, Senate confirmation by such and such date, um, then it sort of automatically gets filled by other members of the court or something like that until such time as an agreement is reached. And you start to have other experts in the judiciary having a say over who their colleagues are and having that kind of idea of, so because integrity in some way relies on a body of knowledge and expertise and say what you will about legal academia, right? I'm sure there are lots of things we can all find and not like about it. But the point is that these folks invest time in, in, in becoming serious practitioners of the art of being a judge, as it were, right? So you could say the more you have expertise play into it, the more that could be helpful. Um, I have seen proposals that involve sort of the Supreme Court saying, you know, having saying, oh, the Supreme Court should have, you know, four Republican appointed members, four Democratic appointed members, and four more members that can only be chosen by unanimous consent of the other eight, right? Like, so that there's something there around, there has to be a middle ground. You have to find people who are the swing on the court, um, who reflect a broad, um, you know, kind of, you know, variety or um, not, not who, ref who reflect a broad diversity of viewpoints that can bring two different sides of a court together, as it were. Um, so there are proposals there around kind of reforming the court. Some of those would require a constitutional amendment. Some of them you might be able to do statutorily, but the idea of like kind of lowering the temperature, um, you could, as some other countries do, make it possible for the elected branches of government to, by say a supermajority vote, overturn a decision of the, of the Supreme Court like as a kind of safeguard against the court running amok. There are all kinds of things you could do that would kind of put responsibility back towards your elected branches of government and or sort of increase the remove of judges as these experts, as it were, um, that are meant to kind of rule impartially and fairly. Um, one other thing you can do, um, sort of practical stuff, is you could, you could eliminate the filibuster in the Senate, not because you want court appointments to be easier, they've already been, but to make it easier for Congress to do its job on just basic aspects of legislation, right? Like um, the filibuster is nowhere in the constitution. It's just a thing <laughs> that sort of grew up by accident. Um, so make it easier for legislators to legislate at the same time. So there are a number of things that you could sort of do. I guess the last thing I'll say is, and we're gonna talk more about this next week, is I think just listening to you both talk today, recognizing that we have a stake in the outcomes of the decisions that courts make. And so we shouldn't pretend that we don't. 
Um, and that I think has to factor into how we think about evaluating, um, you know, sort of judges better than we, we do right now. I don't quite know how to do that, that that's where questions of judicial philosophy come in. Um, but I do think that there's something important there around like how we, um, how, how we, how we consider and are more honest about the fact that we care about those outcomes because it does all feel like theater right now when a judge goes to a confirmation hearing and you're asking these sorts of questions. Um, so yeah, those are, the, the, again, those are more just sort of different proposals that are, that are out there, but there is something there about that, I think. Um, Why we pay you the big, bro big bucks, brother. Those big podcasting bucks, that's right, yeah. that's right. All <laughs> um, oh, twos of dollars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, it, one thing to your point, Thabiti, is that we should pray for wisdom for our judges. And actually, frankly, I think we should pray that judges do the most, probably the most significant thing built into the design of our judicial system is the idea of those judges having lifetime tenure. Um, or, you know, in the case of my amended idea, like a very long tenure, the idea being that you can't possibly be a judge again after this. All the decisions made once. And judges are supposed to use that to be independent and to have that sort of integrity. And it's a choice they can make, um, you know? And so I think that's something that we can, we can definitely pray for um, as we pray for our judges. So. Amen. Amen. With that in mind, if you want to go ahead and uh, pray for us. Amen. Let's pray, brothers. Father, we thank you for your good blessings. We thank you for the blessing of authority. Thank you for the blessing of, of wisdom and discernment, justice. We thank you, Lord, that you have uh, purposed that we who are Americans would live in a country under the rule of law. Pray, O oh Lord, that um, we would strengthen that. You would raise up leaders who understand that and act accordingly. And specifically today, we pray, O oh Lord, for our judges. We pray for each member of the Supreme Court and the federal courts. Uh, on down to local courts. We pray that they would dispense justice impartially. We pray that they would be skilled in law um, and, and wise with regard to uh, humanity. We pray that they would image forth your righteousness and your integrity. Um, we pray that you would raise up more men and women um, who know you, who trust in you, uh, to enter into laws of vocation and to thereby bring the mind of Christ, Lord, uh, into this field. And uh, we just pray that you would make your righteousness shine like the noonday sun. Uh, we pray for rulings that we disagree with and rulings we don't understand. We pray, oh Lord, for rulings that we do agree with. And, um, and we pray for humility in the face of it all. Uh, we, don't, we don't know all the workings um, that will follow. Uh, and so we, we remind ourselves now to trust in you. Uh, so, Lord, bless the, those in authority over us, we pray, uh, with all that they need to rule in a way that pleases you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways.
Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.